The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, folks. Good to be with you. And uh, before I uh, get into this wonderful text that was just read to us, I uh, want to invite those who are here uh, and also those online to uh, dial in to ChristPres.org backslash blackbook. Uh, please register your attendance with us, whether it's in person or virtual. Uh, it really helps us to care uh, uh, well for the church uh, when we know that you uh, are here, and especially what your needs are, which you can share with us there as well. And uh, uh, so that being said, uh, our text this week is the 128th Psalm. We're right in the middle of our series on the Psalms of Ascent, and the title of today's sermon is Happiness. And uh, I'll get to the reason why we're calling the sermon Happiness in a minute, but first I'll give you a little bit of of uh, my background in my college days, at least for a couple of years, my summer job was a camp counselor at Falling Creek Camp for Boys in Tuxedo, North Carolina. And I remember one particular summer, there was a boy named Bill Butterfield in my cabin. And every night after the lights went out and we started to hear the crickets cabin was quiet, and then I would start to hear it. After about 10 minutes after lights out, Bill would start quietly weeping uh, into his pillow, and then once he nodded off to sleep, he would grind his teeth for uh, the good bit of the night. Uh, Bill was sad, and he was anxious, and he was especially sad and especially anxious because he was terribly homesick for the entire two weeks of that particular uh, season of camp, and one time as uh, the you know cabin counselor, I asked Bill, is there anything we can do to remind you of home? Because he, he missed home more than anybody else there, and he said, well, at home at nighttime, uh, when we're about to go to bed, we do story time and we sing. And so we started to, in our cabin, rally around Bill's sadness and rally around Bill's anxiety and homesickness to encourage him uh, by stories, which I would be the storyteller. I would just make them up on the fly, and we would sing. 
There was enough familiarity created by the stories and the singing to make those two weeks tolerable to Bill. But he never felt at home. He never got to the point where he wanted to stay. On his very best day, it was an ache with pockets of happiness and joy, but, 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 but the lingering feeling for him was the ache to get back home. Now, Bill Butterfield, I think, is a picture of what it means to live as a human being in a fallen world. We have this ability that God's given us, even in the middle of the wreckage, to, um, to try to live fully, to try to find joy in certain things. Uh, it was mentioned earlier in the service, uh, in, in the baptism, that our chief end is to glorify and enjoy God forever, and forever includes right now. And so the enjoyment of God and the enjoyment of the things that God gives us to enjoy. Uh, but they're never quite home. The best seasons of life are really just like a good summer camp. You know, C.S. Lewis said, if I find myself in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And what the 128th Psalm does is it gives us a picture, and it's a picture that for some conjures warm, happy, glad feelings, and for others it conjures pain. And for others it's somewhere in between, uh, because it's a picture of a family of origin. It's a picture of a marriage and a table surrounded with kids. And so I want to interact with this psalm about those things uh, from three different directions. I'd like to talk about the happy home, the hurting home, and then the home that heals us. And so we'll start with the happy home. That's, that's really what this is a description of. It's a picture of the ideal. It's almost as if he's painting a picture of home life without sin, <laughs> home life without sorrow and tragedy and bereavement and those other things that can be so disruptive and sad. The happy home. He says in the first verses, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. And then he goes on to talk about family life. Now, this word blessed in both the Old Testament and also the New Testament is a word that is most accurately translated into the English language, happy. To be blessed is to be happy. And in ancient Hebrew culture, especially, the nuclear family and also the extended family was considered the standard sign of abundance and blessedness. And this psalm here talks about the nuclear family in a couple of ways. First, it gives a picture of, of a happy marriage. Verse three, your wife will be like a fruitful vine. This is, this is an echo, really, of, of, of the joy that we see Adam uh, having when Eve is introduced to him. 
And Adam, when he is introduced to Eve by the Lord, he's slack-jawed. He, he, slack his breath is taken away. He, 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 he feels complete for the first time in his life. He says, she's flesh of my flesh. She's bone of my bones. And then God says, it gets even better. With her, be naked and have no shame. With her, multiply the population. With her, make more boys and girls who will grow to become men and women who will make more boys and girls. And maybe this is why the Song of Solomon, which is a, a very erotic picture of the blessed marriage, one spouse says of another, I'm my beloved's and my beloved is mine. There's a sense of belonging there. Proverbs 18, 22. He who finds a wife, and, and you, could, you could reverse that. She who finds a good husband finds a good thing. Uh, marriage is not the only answer to what God spoke into paradise when Adam was all by himself. You know, it is not good for the man to be alone. Marriage isn't the only answer, but it, but it can be part of the answer for those who are given that gift. The point of God's statement in paradise, though, ultimately, is not marriage. You know, even the Apostle Paul, a single man, writing about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, he's talking about husbands and wives and the dynamic of love and, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And, you know, wives respect your husbands, husband love and cherish your wives. And then Paul makes this interesting statement. He says, but I'm, what I'm really talking about here is Christ in the church. He says, the point of marriage isn't even marriage. The point of marriage ultimately isn't him and her together. The point of marriage is to be a sign of the ultimate reality, and that's Christ and his bride. And what is Christ and his bride? One massive community. Christ and the church. You know, we are all created in the image of God. We are communal people. We are hardwired to belong. We are hardwired to want and be wanted. We are hardwired to need and to be needed. We're hardwired for togetherness. This is one of the main psychological reasons behind the fact that solitary confinement is considered broadly by those who are incarcerated to be torture. The worst thing that can happen to you in prison is not to get beaten, but to be put into solitary, according to people who are in prison. Because the isolation is even more unbearable than getting, getting beaten up. It's also the psychological reason behind why psychologists and psychiatrists will say that infants who do not get held and experience human touch enough in their childhood have a less likely chance of thriving later in life. There's something about togetherness that the human heart and human soul insists on in order to flourish. The happy marriage is one picture that this psalm provides of, of what can, can help to answer that longing. 
Then it goes on to talk about the full house. You know, to, to Adam and Eve, again, God says to them, it, be fruitful and multiply, and he gives them the ability to do that. And the psalm here affirms that in the third verse, your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Now, a little bit of context there. Back then, olives were considered a delicacy. You know, today, you know, anybody in Nashville can go to a Mediterranean restaurant or Whole Foods and get a whole bucket of olives, you know, and, and, and it's not considered the delicacy that it was back then. It, it, maybe today's equivalent would be you, you get from this point forward to have unlimited supply of of cane prime, you know, prime rib or filet. Uh, add to that, um, add to that your your favorite, you know, recipe of roasted Brussels sprouts. Uh, your favorite, you know, freshly baked bread, and all of all as much of your favorite wine as 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 you can have within reason, uh, uh, in order to enjoy the abundance of that feast. That's what it, that's what it would sound like to the ancient Hebrews. To hear about an abundance of olive shoots at your table. It was a delicacy. Children are seen that way. They're treated that way and spoken of that way. You know, the psalm we looked at last week ended with these words, that children are a heritage from the Lord. Blessed are those whose quiver is filled with them. You know, verse 3, in this psalm, we get the image of this full, boisterous table in the home. You know, having children represented wealth in those days. It was in an agrarian society. Most people made their living uh, by farming. And the more children you had meant the more labor you had, the more workers, the more produce, and ultimately the more purchasing power. Children became uh, parents' security in their retirement years when they could no longer provide for themselves. They didn't have 401ks. They didn't have you know, mutual funds. They had kids or they were at risk in their old age. Uh, Legacy was passed on to the next generation through sons, preserving the family name. Uh, Couples who had many sons were treated like national heroes because it was the sons who populated the military and gave a sense of strength and security to, to the nation. And so the full house was was a sign in those days of abundance. But was there ever such a home (laughs) as is described in this psalm? Or is this just sort of a fairyland type of home? Has anybody, is there anybody in here who could say that this psalm describes your home life, your family of origin, your anticipated Future. I don't think any of us could say that this psalm is an accurate description of our everyday reality. And so let's look at the hurting home, which is the backdrop, interestingly, to a psalm like this, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But first, James Montgomery Boyce, who was the pastor for many years of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, said this. This was in his commentary about this particular psalm. Anyone who has ever tried to raise a family comes to the Bible's picture of domestic joy with a certain amount of skepticism. 
There's good reason for this skepticism. Families are made up of people. People are sinners. And sin disrupts even the best of relationships. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, or maybe even said it, the honeymoon's over. What's behind that statement, the honeymoon is over? Relationships that begin with abundance and joy and and, and sort of this thrill of hope and anticipation for what lies ahead, whether we're talking about a couple falling in love or, or the wedding day and the honeymoon or whether we're talking about, you know, a couple that gives birth to children and there's all this excitement and hope and aspiration. What do we mean by the honeymoon is over? It means this, that that, that season of, of, of eruption of joy will very soon give way to the realities of fallen life and fallen existence. That if they are going to be preserved and kept healthy will require intense intention, intense maintenance, and intense repair over the years. No relationship works or flourishes, whether we're talking a marriage, a parent-child relationship, a friendship, organizational relationships, cannot flourish, will not flourish without careful attention, constant maintenance, and constant repair. There are no utopian promises, in other words, that are being made in psalms like this. There's pain in every family. So let's talk about, for instance, the ancient Hebrew family that's being written about so glowingly in this psalm. Here's the backdrop. Here's the national context at that time child mortality rate of 50%. That means for every child that the average family had in the home, they'd also buried one. A lot of pain, even in the best, fullest homes. A lot of tears, a lot of bereavement, a lot of hard, hard memories. Big holes, big gaping holes in the heart because of the loss. It gives context to the various wounds that might be experienced when we, when we hear psalms like this or when we dare to walk into church with our mother wounds on Mother's Day or with our father wounds on Father's Day, which is a lot of people in churches every year. Some live their lives without any of these things that are being described. Yet when Jesus is crucified, he looks down from the cross, and there he sees his widowed mother, who has nobody to take care of her. And so he looks to his close friend John and says, I want you to take her in. She needs you, because she no longer has her husband. Jesus and the Apostle Paul History's two greatest teachers on marriage and family. Neither of them ever had a wife. Neither of them ever had biological children of their own. Rich Mullins wrote this song that that was released uh, after his death, 
Rich Mullins, also a, a single man who never married, is a, an artist who wrote songs about Jesus Christ. And here's uh, it's a song called You Did Not Have a Home, which was about his homelessness, but part of his homelessness meant he also did not take a wife. And so, so it goes like this. You did not take a wife. There were pretty maids all in a row who lined up to touch the hem of your robe, but you had no place to take them. So you did not take a wife because you did not have a home. Now I want to pause just for a second and think about the fact that Jesus, the greatest teacher on marriage and the greatest teacher on family that ever lived, how kind it was of him to forego both of those realities in his own life for many reasons of his own, but one of which is to identify and to identify very closely and very empathetically and, 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 and very, very much with presence with those for whom this subject matter strikes the deepest wound. I am meek. I'm lowly in heart. Jesus surrounded himself with community, but he even subjected himself to family pain in that his own family members, his family of origin, were embarrassed by him. They were embarrassed by him. You know, some people said to Jesus one day, your mother and your brothers and your family, they're looking for you. And he said, yeah, and the reason why they were looking for him was to pull him away from his public ministry because his public ministry was, was embarrassing them. Some of the things he was saying, his new ideas, how he's disrupting the status quo. And what Jesus says is, who are my mothers and my brothers and my sisters and my fathers? It's all these people who hear the will of God and do it. I'll get to that again in a minute. But the point here is, for those of us who are called for a season or for a long time to live alone, and I'm one of those people, I lived alone for a lot longer than I wanted to. Jesus says, I'm, in your, I'm, I'm with you. I'm in the same boat as you. It says a whole lot about his kindness and his presence there. But there's not just the, the pain of living alone. There's also the pain of struggling attempts at intimacy. You know, verse 3 echoes the Song of Solomon in using the phrase fruitful vine. Now, fruitful vine is a metaphor that points to the reasons why the Song of Solomon is not included in most children's Bibles, if you know what I mean. It's a very erotic book. Did you know that the Bible has some, some very erotic material in it, especially in the Song of Solomon? But here's the truth about men in marriage. It's what some doctors call the 10% statistic. 10% per decade, inability to be physically intimate. That means 20% of men in their 20s, 30% of men in their 30s, 40% of men in their 40s, 50% of men in their 50s, and so on, are unable physically to be intimate. And that's a deep wound. 
in many marriages and a deep source of shame for, uh, or felt shame, not real shame, but felt shame for many men. Many couples are lonelier in their marriage than they ever were as single people. That's another wound. A marriage that starts face to face in the, in the marriage bed and, and, and eventually, you know, they, there's this growing apart because of sin and not apologizing well, not forgiving well, and, and face to face becomes back to back. You know, in, in pastoral counseling over the years, the loneliest people I've ever worked with are married people who are living back to back with their spouse. They've lost the, the connection. The, the intimacy has been um, deeply disrupted and deeply disturbed. So marriage isn't the answer to loneliness. Community is. Community can happen in marriage. Community can happen among friends and in churches and so on. There's also the wound of infertility. Some 13% of couples are struggling silently with this reality of the inability to multiply and a deep longing to be able to do so. And we see people in the Bible like Hannah where it says that the storm, a storm raged in her because she couldn't conceive. Or Sarah, who laughed a cynical laugh, not, not, a, not a silly laugh, but a cynical laugh when she was told, you know, in your old age, you're going to have a son and many nations are going to come uh, from you. It, you know, her laugh was like, yeah, right, sure, uh-huh. Just wound me again on that one already. Or Rebecca says to her husband Jacob in her barrenness, give me children or I will die. You know, the contemporary author, Brittany Cherry, says that Mother's Day of all the days is the day that makes her heart crack. She says, for some, Mother's Day is a celebration. For me, it speaks of loss and failure. And then there's also the reality of death that strikes every family. The truth about every happy table The truth about every happy table is that every person except for one at that table is going to be buried by all or some of the others. And the last one to go will go alone among the people at that table. That's how it is. So even even the, the kind of family that's described here has sorrows ahead of it. But then to to James Boyce's point, the deepest hurt in families comes from the sin that we commit against each other. You know, when, when somebody goes into a counselor because they're having challenges relationally, uh, because they're, you know, lashing out or, or face-to-face has become back-to-back in the dynamic between spouses or between parents and children or between siblings, and, and they show up in a counselor's office, they don't, they don't say, tell me about your childhood friends. They don't say, tell me about your teachers or, or your coaches. They don't say, tell me about where, you, you know, where you, you've worked in your life, who your bosses have been, even, even though those are all important and significant relationships. It always starts with, tell me about your family of origin. And tell me about your hurts that happened in your family 
of origin. That, that, that's where the rebuilding begins, is with that question and with that story, with those stories in a counselor's office. And what every counselor would say is that we hurt each other because we are hurting. Hurting people hurt people. You know, counselors want to understand in order that they might know what the raw material is that they're working with for the rebuilding process. They want to know about the child that you once were, about the pain and betrayal that you experienced as the child that you once were, and when, where, and how you put the walls around your heart that you did that are now leading you to repeat history in your own current situation. And how can we unravel that and rebuild? You know, at a recent, I was at a dinner recently with, with several people, and the dinner included, um, you know, the, the families on Instagram, right, that, that, that you know, you see the, the pictures of, like, three generations enjoying their beach vacation and, and, and just having uh, an abundant time together, right, or at least it looks that way on, on Instagram, And then you've got the other people at the dinner gathering saying, I have no idea what that feels like. I've never been able to be in a picture like that because that's not my family. We don't have a beach to go to, and even if we did, we wouldn't feel safe with the people there if, you know, we got the generations together. And one person in the conversation said, you know, sometimes I feel so jealous of these multi-generational families that, 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 that seem to have this blessing that I have never had. And that if it's going to happen for me, I'm going to end up being the old person in the picture someday. That's the only chance that I've got to ever be in one of these kinds of pictures. And then another person at the table, and this will bring us to the last, the last part of this reflection, said, well... One thing that I've wondered is if the reason why I feel like I need the local church so much is because I never had any of this in my earthly family. In other words, I wonder if, if maybe my story is somewhat like the story of Jesus was, that his family didn't understand him, didn't care for him, didn't love him well. His family of origin was a source of pain. And so he said, look around. These are my mothers. These are my fathers. These are my brothers. These are my sisters. I've heard certain people say, who who don't have an anchor in their family of origin, I absolutely need the local church to be my significant other, to be my mothers and my fathers. Otherwise, I would be all all alone in the world, but thank God for the local church. You know, blessed are those, Jesus says, who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst, who are merciful, who are persecuted. Blessed is everyone, even those who are described in those ways, who fears the Lord. Blessed are those who have a hole in the heart, 
around these issues, and yet who have the Lord, who steps in and says to the greatest, most abundant, happy families on earth, you ain't seen nothing yet. You've only gotten an appetizer, and it's wonderful, and enjoy it, but it's not the feast. There's a feast that's coming that, 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 that will make your happiness seem like boredom relative to what's in store for you. And so, so don't, don't plant your flag there. Don't plant your anchor there. Remember when Paul talked about the abundant marriage, he said, I'm not really talking about that. I'm ultimately talking about Christ and the church. And for those about whom the family story is a story of wounds, think about the promises that are made to you, that in God, you have the father that you always knew you should have, but you never got to have him. Now you do. And you have the mother that you always thought you should have had, but you never did. Jesus is the one who longs, he says, to gather his children under his wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks. Or you grew up as an only, a lonely only child or, 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 or with a, a, a rough sibling relationship. Jesus is the elder brother who's not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. And in the church, we can say like Jesus, here are my mothers and my fathers and my brothers and my sisters and my aunts and my uncles and my grandmas and grandpas, and my grandchildren and my children, the many, many generations. These are my beach picture people that I've never had but always wished that I could have those beach people too. These are they. I have family too. Blessed are those for whom summer camp is not enough. Blessed are those for whom home is with God and with God's people around God's table. It's right there. Where is that in the psalm? It's right there in verse 5. The Lord bless you from Zion through the prosperity of Jerusalem. Notice he he doesn't zero in on the nuclear family here. He doesn't say God bless you through the prosperity of your family and peace on your nuclear family. He, He goes bigger. He says, the Lord bless you from Zion through the prosperity of Jerusalem and peace and the peace of Israel. All three of these terms, Zion, Jerusalem, Israel, in the New Testament are associated with the local church, also called the bride of Christ, also called the children of God, also called brothers and sisters to one another. You know, the gathering of God's people is what caused the psalmist's heart to combust about this family. One thing I ask, one thing that I long for, David says, that I might... Behold the beauty of the Lord in his temple, among his people. Psalm 84, better is one day in your courts, O Lord, than thousands elsewhere. Psalm 44, there's this longing for God. As the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? But then he goes on and says, I also long for my siblings, I also long for the children of God. He says, I remember how I would go with the throng to the house of God with a multitude keeping festival. 
All of these psalms, the psalms of ascent, are psalms that the people of Israel sang at the risk of their lives as they made the journey up the hill with all of its bandits and violent wildlife to get to the place of worship with the people of God. This current season, on the one hand, it's a sadly revealing season because as the season goes on, those who were once connected to especially the American local church are starting to treat the local church more and more as non-essential. As evidenced by a recent Barna study that says that a full 30% of people who were engaged with a local church in America before coronavirus are now completely disengaged. They're, they're not there in person and they're not there online anymore. They're just out. And if they're in the millennial generation, it goes up to 50%, completely disengaged from the local church. It's become non-essential to some. And on the other hand, it's become more essential to those for whom the absence has caused the heart to grow fonder. Where so many are realizing how much of a lifeline this family, the family of God, is. Like Bill Butterfield, they need the stories and they need the songs. And being away, even, even in sweet places, is, is, it's as unsatisfying as summer camp when you know that, that your family awaits you. I'm going to say something hard and also something encouraging. And the hard one doesn't really apply to those who are here and those who are dialed in. But maybe this can be a cause for you to reach out to someone in your life or your circles. The less homesick we feel for God and the people of God, the more concerned we should be. There's a picture of this in Luke chapter 15 of a son who wanted to leave home. He wanted to be away from his father. He wanted to be away from his father's house and live separately from all of the above. And it didn't, it didn't go well at all. And he was left isolated and broken and beaten down from being away. But the beautiful thing was that the father never stopped longing for him and never stopped aching for his return, never stopped weeping, never stopped grinding his teeth, wondering when his son would come home. And then we get the beautiful parable of the prodigal's return from the far country in Luke chapter 15 and the father's embrace. Here's the good news, though. The more homesick we feel, in a time like this for God and the people of God, the more healthy we are. It's, it's actually the only kind of sickness that is actually a sign of health. Homesickness for the presence of God and for the people of God is a sign of health that should encourage you. 
And we have a promise there too from Jesus. I prepare a place for you. And I prepare a table for you. And we have, we have a sign and a picture and a foreshadowing of that great table of abundance around which we will all sit one day. And, 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 but, it, but it's here with us, at least a foretaste, maybe a, a little bit of reserves from the wine cellar of the new heaven and the new earth that we get to enjoy just a little bit of week by week to remind us of what's to come. And so, so let's transition to the Lord's Supper and uh, I'd like to ask you to join me in prayer before we do that. Father, take this bread and this cup, consecrate it, set it apart and cause there to be spiritual realities and nourishment to go on in our hearts and lives that are even as real as the, the feel and the taste of this bread and this cup. Father, as we eat and drink, stir our longing for home. Never let summer camp be something that we want to settle into. Lord, always, always, always be drawing us. Make us homesick for you and remind us that our home is with you because our chief end is to glorify you and enjoy you forever with our siblings in Christ. And we pray in his name, amen. Now let's please stand together, whether you're here in the room or whether you're at home dialing in, uh, and we will pray the Lord's Prayer together, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.